0: Uh, have you ever been eating and you thought to yourself, I, I don't know why I'm eating this. I don't, uh, I, I didn't really want to eat it, but something just made me eat. There's a whole science behind Why We Eat What We Eat. Uh, I didn't know anything about it, but now after reading Why You Eat What You Eat by Rachel Herz, I am starting to grasp it just a wee bit. Thankfully, Rachel is here. Uh, she knows a whole lot more about it than I do. Rachel Herz is a neuroscientist. She specializes in perception and emotion, and she is the author, as I said, of Why You Eat What You Eat. Rachel, good to talk to you. Thanks for being here. I'm uh, I'm excited about this because I found the book fascinating.
1: Well, thank you very much Brian. I'm very happy to be on.
0: So, what is
1: for what is neuro
0: neurogastronomy before because that's basically what the book is based on, correct? <laughs>
1: Exactly. So the idea of behind neurogastronomy gastronomy is bringing together the disciplines of psychology, neuroscience, nutrition, social behavior, even understanding what goes on behind the agriculture scenes and the media and marketing scenes of food and bringing that all together to understand our relationship with food because it's very complex and a lot of different fields are involved.
0: Now you had done a lot of work, you had specialized in scent and actually uh, one of your books, The Scent of Desire. What made you move from that, and I'm guessing they're all interconnected, but what made you move from that specialty to to write this book?
1: Well, first of all, our sense of smell is very much involved in our experience of eating. So, for instance, and also my second book is called That's Disgusting. And even though it's about the emotion of disgust, the emotion of disgust is actually a taste-based emotion. So if you want to think about smell and taste as being my previous work, and our experience of flavor is all due to our nose. So, for instance, it's not the saltiness of the bacon that we crave. It's the aroma plus that saltiness that's so amazing. And so given my background in the two- senses I think that are most involved in our experience of eating as well as my background in emotion and motivated behavior and my love of food myself (laughs) I figured this was the way to go well we're gonna delve
0: into the uh, to the sense of smell later because one of the chapters deals with a gentleman who lost his sense of smell and I've I've never had a sense of smell so that chapter hit hit close to home so we're gonna delve into that uh, a little bit more but just in general how, does, how do our senses and, and our mind and, and everything else impact our experience with food? Because a lot of us, you know, we just eat. We don't think about eating as an ex- our experience with food. That seems uh, like a big, a big thought for people who just are grabbing something on the go and they're just eating because they're hungry.
1: Well, there's a whole lot. In fact, that's what my whole book is about. So I don't want to spend right. hours on the phone with you, but I'll just give you a couple of tidbits. Yes. I mean, for example, I just already mentioned how the you know smell and taste produce flavor. Well, it's also the case that our hearing is involved in our sense of our, our experience of food. For example, when we're in really loud environments, it turns out that our the nerve that's involved in perceiving taste gets disturbed, such that it changes our ability to taste certain things. And actually, it creates a change such that things like tomato juice taste a lot better. And this is why people tend to order tomato juice on airplanes, because, in fact, being on an airplane is a really loud environment. So that's just one example. Another example is visual. So, for instance, the color of the plate, the size of the plate, the dimensions of the plate, those sorts of things go into our experience of food and how much we eat and how fast we eat. How much we see food obviously has an impact on on that, for instance, looking at gorgeous pictures of food, you know, a.k.a. food porn. That certainly drives us to eat. And then there's a myriad of psychological factors from our own emotional state to our social environment to the labels that we're exposed to with respect to food. All of those influencing not only our perception of what we're eating or how much or how fast we eat, but even our metabolism, which is really very
0: fascinating let's drill down on that a little bit and go back to what you were talking about because i had written i I had that question about the tomato juice on the plane so Mm -hmm. does that with the hearing is that going to uh, be if we're at a sporting event that's very loud or if if we're at a movie that's you know one of these disaster movies that that's very loud is that does the same principle apply am i going to want something different if i'm in one of those environments than on an airplane where i'm going to think that my tomato juice tastes so much better (sighs)
1: Well, that's an excellent question, and the difference between, I think, a disaster movie, I think the bar might be similar to an airplane if it's a constantly loud noise, but in a movie environment, you have variation in sound, so you're not bombarded with a constant level of high-level noise. The difference with being on an airplane is you have this constant, basically 85 decibels around you for a continuous period of time, and that's what produces the perturbation in this uh, cranial nerve called the cortitimpani. Now, if you were in just a a really loud environment for a brief moment, the effect probably wouldn't have that kind of an impact on food because it would be so transient. But the bar example is actually really a good one. And one of the other interesting things that happens in really loud bar environments, and one of the things that came out of this research is actually salty and sweet taste are depressed while this perception of umami and that's why tomato juice tastes so great is because tomatoes have a lot of glutamate which is what produces umami and that is elevated but the other thing that tends to happen in really loud environments Especially, you know, musically loud environments, if it's very distracting. It's like sensory overload. And when we're highly distracted, we don't really pay very much attention to what we're eating. It's like, right. you know, what happens when you're in front of the television set and all of a sudden that bowl of popcorn's gone and you're like wondering what happened to <laughs> yeah, where'd it, where the go? gremlins come in. <laughs> Well, it's similar when we're in really loud environments. We often don't notice. It's harder to kind of feel our body. It's harder to get the same experience with eating because there's so much stimulation around us. And actually, also interesting, people who have a tendency to drink often misjudge how much they've had to drink when they're in really loud environments and can drink potentially more than they may have intended to.
0: And it's because the noise is distracting us and taking our, our, our mind off something else, uh, apart from the umami, which we'll go back back to but it's is it is that the reason that we're hearing so much and our mind is dealing with that that we're not paying attention to the other senses
1: well to a certain extent we're not paying it's hard to concentrate on any of what well, we can you know sort of not. The real difference with respect to the loud noise is one, there is changes that are happening to the cordy nerve, which is affecting salty and sweet, so you may be eating more salty snacks than you might have otherwise because you're not getting as much salty taste, so you want to eat more. Um, That may also encourage drinking because, you know, the reason why bars have peanuts and pretzels is because when you eat salt, you get thirsty, so you consume more. But the other thing that seems to be the case is that it's harder for us to feel what's going on in our bodies when we have all this thumping noise around us. So if you're getting a little tipsy and there's all this really loud music around you, it's harder to feel that tipsiness when you're in this hugely noisy environment. And so you might be drinking past a certain point of tipsiness than you might have otherwise done.
0: Let's go back to the, you mentioned the tomato juice and the umami, which is a term that I wasn't familiar with till just a few years ago. It seemed to start coming up with certain restaurants are going, oh, our burger has this umami. For those who aren't familiar, what is what is umami?
1: So umami is a... Mouth sensation. I hesitate to call it a taste. I personally don't consider it to be one of the basic tastes, although there are a lot of people who do. The reason I don't consider it a basic taste is because it's very confused with salt. It's, you know, it's hard to distinguish the two. So that's the reason I don't include it. But it's certainly a mouth sensation, and it's produced by uh, experiencing glutamate. So, for instance, the most classical form of umami is monosodium glutamate or MSG, you know, what's typically you know, has its fame from Asian restaurants, back in the 70s especially, but it's also present in, in real food that has a lot of glutamate in it, such as tomatoes and mushrooms and meat, too, obviously soy sauce, cheese, bread, so the Mediterranean diet is very high in glutamate and very umami-ish. Okay. So those are the kinds of foods you want to take on an airplane or anytime you're in a constantly loud environment, because that kind of food is going to taste amazing and um, things like grapefruit which are sour and bitter loud noise doesn't affect it so it's just as loud i mean just (laughs) Just as sour and bitter you're getting less sweet as well so it'll be not very good
0: okay so we have to we have to when we're getting on a plane make sure we have uh, look up what uh, just for example besides tomato juice and you mentioned the mediterranean diet a couple other foods that might be high in umami
1: well anything like pizza, because, like I said, cheese bread tomato <laughs> <Okay>. mushrooms <laughs> all those things are are high in glutamate, so or a sandwich that has those things, so also fish and meats, bacon actually has a lot of umami so you oh. could have you know uh, Bacon cheese sandwich, uh, that would certainly be a good choice, too. So a lot of things we already like to eat, but you want to stay away from things like probably broccoli and I stay the away healthy from things, and things, things because they're going to taste worse on an airplane. <laughs>
0: I don't know if that's possible, but I'll take your word for it. All right, let's take a quick break, and then I want to go back to something you touched on, too. And and you hear this a lot when people are trying to lose weight. Oh, use a smaller plate. So Mm -hmm. we'll talk about the visuals and how the visual... Our, our sense of sight affects why we're eating and how we're eating. Rachel hers is my guest. Her book is called Why You Eat What You Eat. You can also uh, check her out at Rachel, rachelherz.com. That's where you can get all the information on her other books, The Scent of Desire, and That's Disgusting. More with Rachel in just a moment. Physical, physical. We are talking about the physical. science... Behind our relationship with food, the book "Why You Eat What You Eat." Rachel Herz is the author. She is a neuroscientist, and she is my guest here on WGN. Uh, Rachel, we before we uh, before we took the break, we were talking about how sound can affect how we're eating and what we're what we're tasting. You had mentioned about plate size, and and I know this goes back to this the sense of sight. Is it also an environmental thing, and how how is this all connected?
1: So the plate size is obviously correlated with portion size, and we hear a lot about portion control. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, the size of our basic serving plates have grown very much in the last, you know, five decades or so. In fact, the size of what we would consider a normal dinner plate would have been a serving platter probably 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah. So what happens with that is we start, you know, filling our plates because we still hold on to some sort of Depression-era norms of make sure to eat all the food on your plate and so on, and so that leads to consuming a lot of food. Now, it turns out that if you put your food on a smaller plate, you will feel like you see the full plate full of food, and that can be satisfying in itself. And this is due to what's known as the Delbouf illusion, where when you have a, let's say, a black circle in a small in, that's a, in, a, in a white circle that's only a little bit bigger than it, okay. that black circle looks a lot bigger than if you put that exact same black circle in a white circle that's quite a bit bigger than it. So it's like if you had a small a clump of pasta on a really big plate, it would look like a lot less than the same amount of pasta on a small plate. Okay. And when we see the plate full, we feel better about it. And I actually heard a really good trick, which was the fact if you use a concave bowl, so that the top looks like you actually are, you know, one of your regular dinner plates. But because it goes down in the center, it's not actually fully round all the way through. And that's another way you can trick yourself. So oh. we like to see the whole food on the plate, and we like to eat everything that's on the plate. So the idea of a smaller plate or one of these concave bowls is the way to go.
0: And uh, you see those, it, as soon as you mentioned it, I can picture all these, Itali- a lot of Italian restaurants have the big bowls. So the outside of the the bowl is huge. The diameter. Is is very big, but then in the in the center, there's not really all that much stuff in there. It's probably the correct portion size. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. All right. So now we've we've kind of and again we're glossing over a lot because there's so much in the book. Again, the book why you eat what you eat. Um, let's talk about since we're talking about uh, looking at the food and how it's visually appealing to us. Uh, sometimes we get cravings. What causes what causes these cravings, and how can we manage? these cravings? Because sometimes we're craving things that are probably not the best for us.
1: Well, cravings come for a variety of reasons. First of all, cravings come when we're hungry, (laughs) and that's good. So if you're hungry, you know, definitely eat. And sometimes it turns out if we're really craving something, we could be in a state of depletion, although that's not usually very common these days because we have so much available food around us. But if you have been, for example, working out in the hot sun for hours, you could be in a state, for example, of salt depletion because you've been sweating so much. But normally we don't really have that same kind of real physiological Uh, need-based craving. We usually have just a desire-based craving. And when desire is driving our cravings, when we're not actually hungry, we need to ask ourselves why we are craving what we're craving. And often the kinds of foods we're craving are high in sugar and also in fat. And those foods actually are neurochemically really positive for us. So when we taste sugar, it actually turns on the bliss part of our brain, our reward center, our pleasure center gets turned on, as well as it even relieves pain. And the same goes for fat. Fat feels really fabulous, (laughs) and it actually starts um, triggering our natural endorphins, so relieving our pain, both physically and mentally. So there's a real um, emotional basis, a physiological and neurochemical basis for our drive for these foods but it's also possible that these foods are connected to people for you that make you feel good or make you feel comforted or make you feel soothed like the kinds of foods that mom used to make so that when you're feeling kind of down you want to eat those foods because you want to get a warm hug basically you know from your loved one far away and so the question is you need to ask yourself Why am I eating this? And do I really want this? And am I getting the pleasure out? Sort of the bottom line that I want people to really understand from reading this book is just ask yourself a couple of questions while you're consuming. And one of the basic ones is, am I getting pleasure? If the answer is yes... Then go ahead. So let's say the first bite of cheesecake, is that pleasurable? Yes. Right. How about the third? Yeah, it's still pretty good. How about the sixth? Well, maybe not so much. <laughs> How about the tenth? No? Okay, stop. <laughs>
0: All right. Well that's that goes, our my news person, Pam just came in with an empty bag of caramel corn. And she said, ask why I ate this whole bag of caramel corn. It, it, is that is it just a distraction? Because you mentioned sometimes when we're she's in there working on the news. And would it be the same as if I'm watching TV and all of a sudden, like we mentioned the popcorn bowl? Oh, it's gone. You're just, just we're not paying attention to what we're eating. Yeah. And it just it just goes away.
1: Absolutely. Unfortunately. So what happens when we're distracted, work is just as bad, maybe even sometimes worse than television, because especially if we're engaged in what we're doing, we're really, you know, not paying attention. Our hand is just kind of mindlessly moving into the bowl or the bag. And what happens under these conditions is, first of all, we're not even we're not even noticing we're doing it, we're not feeling whether we're full or not. And we're not getting the flavor of the food either. So we're not feeling satiated. So let's say you you kind of know you're tasting something kind of sweet and salty. Yeah. But you're not getting your bang for your buck. So you just keep on doing it because you haven't really appreciated and perceived the full experience, whereas if you paid attention, you know, literally mindfully ate, so like, oh, wow, this kernel of corn tastes really salty and sweet and delicious, and I'm really enjoying it, then you'd eat a lot less because you'd be satisfied much sooner.
0: Let's go back to cravings for a minute because I got everything you said about, you know, you start thinking of somebody, all those things. Why do we sometimes get a craving where we can actually taste That food, we're not anywhere around it. It's not cooking in our home, but I can conjure up the thought of a certain type of food and all of a sudden it's like I'm eating it right then and I want it. Now I've got to have it.
1: Well, so that goes to our memories, and what we're thinking of is the food from our past that we've really loved. So, for instance, if there's some type of a food that you've really, really enjoy or you have a special memory of eating or, you know, something from your past with respect to a certain kind of a meal, maybe it's even the emotional qualities, the people you were with in social situations and so on, you really want to have that meal now. Now, unfortunately, often, I'm, I'm not sure if this is quite what you're talking about, but often when we have these sort of memory cravings. And then we go to get that food. It's not as good as the memory. (laughs) (laughs) The memory lives, you know, this perfect meal that we had, you know, at some point. And then if we try to recreate it, even if it is exact, you know, we're not exactly the same. The situation isn't exactly the same. And so our perception might not be the same. So if you do sort of go down that memory lane trip for your favorite meal, be prepared <laughs> to be a tiny bit disappointed, potentially. All right,
0: Rachel Herz is my guest. She is the author of Why You Eat What You Eat. On the other side of the news, I want to talk about the sense of smell because there was a, a fascinating, one of the chapters in the book is has a fascinating story about uh, a man and kind of how the medical community discounts and most of us discount the sense of smell how it's uh, c- connected to everything we eat and all of that so rachel if you could just hang on for a minute sure. more with rachel Rachelhurs.com is the website the book why you eat what you eat we'll talk all about the sense of smell connected to your food on the other side you hear the sounds uh, that matter we'll tell you that at the top of the hour but right now it's 4 30 that means it's time for the news here's pam ggn you are not uh, smelling death. I hope you are just smelling whatever it is you are uh, going to eat or whatever is around. Uh, Why You Eat What You Eat is the name of the book. It's a science behind our relationship with food. Rachel Hers is the author. and uh, during, In the book, there's a lot of science, but there's also fascinating stories. There's a story of somebody who is not full unless they eat rice. There's uh, how people become picky eaters. But the one that really struck me was the story of Stan. Who is a uh, a man who was in a horrible accident and lost his sense of smell, and there were there's a lot of things that go around uh, along with smell. And as I mentioned, Rachel, at the beginning, I don't have a sense of smell. And as I read this chapter, I was like, wow, that this kind of explains a lot. Uh, how important is smell to our relationship with food?
1: Well, it's. Huge important. And, I, and I'm and i sorry for you, but I mean, you're a little bit luckier than Stan, because if you were born without a sense of smell, you don't know what you're missing. Exactly. Whereas, <laughs> people who had smell and then lost it in an accident become really traumatized often by it. And unfortunately, this depression and debilitation and the quality of their life tends to get worse with time. So you're actually lucky that you don't know what it's like, <laughs> and you've, you've your brain is built a little bit differently. So, so that's actually... Good for you. But because of the fact that flavor is all due to our nose, we don't get that when we don't have smell and it's really actually quite easy to lose your sense of smell in an accident. All you need is to get hit hard, either at the front of your head around the level of your eyebrow or the back of your head. And this can happen in car accidents really easily. It can happen in frontal contact sports like football. It's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that unfortunately can happen relatively easily. And, and often what happens is that people lose their sense of smell for life from that. Mm. There's other ways you can lose smell easily, often getting sick, um, temporarily or having nasal polyps, but those kinds of things can be treated but when you've lost your smell traumatically it often cannot be treated. But anyway, um, on the, the bad side about this is with respect to food is that, like I mentioned before, if you were, in, for example, craving a char-grilled steak or pecan pie or bacon and you ate the char-grilled steak or bacon, you would only taste salt. And if you ate the pecan pie, you'd only taste sweet. Mm-hmm. And for people who are wanting that food, I mean, you don't want to just have some like sugar on a spoon or salt on a spoon. You want right. that food experience. And although you can get some texture sensations, it is not the same thing. And people really become extremely frustrated and extremely upset about this loss of their real food experiences that they want. And Often what happens, so, you know, in the case of Stan, and this is actually relatively common, you know, people tend to go through these sort of extreme swings at the beginning, let's say the first couple of years after losing their sense of smell, where they'll, like, I'm just craving that bacon so much, I'm just going to eat all the bacon I can anyway, and maybe it'll come back to me. And then you realize it's not coming back. And then you decide, I'm not eating bacon, I'm not eating anything. So what happens in these little spikes is that people gain weight, then they lose weight, but then what ends up happening typically is over time people gain weight because the only experiences from food that they can get that are still pleasurable are those that are high in salt sugar and fat and those tend to be high calories so they are getting the pleasure points from the taste and the sensation of let's say you know creaminess and so on but they and that's high calorie and it's often not nutritious so if you do lose your sense of smell in some kind of an accident and you don't think it's going to come back. Be very careful about how you eat because you still want to make sure you're getting nutrition as well as some pleasure, you know, from salt, sugar, and fat.
0: Well, and that was something I had, because people have asked me over years, oh, so you can't taste. And I was, well, yeah, I can taste. But then you you pointed out in the book the difference and the confusion that people have between taste and flavor you know so right. you miss out you miss out on all the subtleties it's not just it's not just the aroma that you're missing out but you're missing out on the uh, on all the the underlying flavors that are in there
1: yeah, because what flavor is is your brain puts together the taste, let's say of salt and the aroma of bacon, and it puts that together and that's the flavor of bacon. So the taste, when we say the word taste, 99.99% of the time we really mean flavor because we're not talking about the saltiness or the sweetness or the sourness or the bitterness. We're talking about that composite experience. Okay. And your nose is what's telling you the difference between let's say, you know, a strip of dried salmon and a strip of bacon. So or a potato and um, an apple or coffee or red wine you know assuming your eyes were closed and so forth
0: now explain because there was also something i learned that we we taste when we're when we're smelling our food it's a two-way process it's in and out so exactly
1: so this is yeah exactly so we so when we have let's say the the bowl of steaming hot chili is being brought over to the table and it's sitting down in front of you. You can smell it. You smell it through your nostrils. That's the kind of typical way we smell stuff, like if we're sniffing a flower or we're sniffing perfume. We sniff in through our nostrils. So what happens and why this this is sort of this confusion of where taste slash flavor is, is that when we're chewing food in our mouth, the aromatic molecules from what we're consuming go from the back of the mouth, there's actually an opening from the back of the mouth, and it goes up through the back of the mouth into the nose and goes to the same receptors that it would happen if you were just sniffing into your nostrils. And while that's going on, we're chewing and we're breathing. So we breathe in, and the air from our mouth whooshes up from the back of our mouth up to our nose, and that and stimulates those receptors. But we have to exhale for the air to go down, pass over those receptors, and for us to get the smell. So it's like if you tried to eat and hold your breath, you wouldn't get the flavor either. Okay. So we and that's why
0: people if they <laughs> that's why people if they're stuffed up they they say they can't taste things too, right?
1: Exactly. So in that case what's happening even though you're breathing is that you're only breathing from your mouth because the passageway between your mouth and your nose is blocked with mucus and so you can't get that experience. And the other thing that's really interesting is when we get the aroma from food, actually the taste itself gets more intense so like the sweetness of the pecan pie is sweeter when we can also smell the caramel and the pecans or the bacon tastes saltier when we can also smell the aromas from the bacon so the taste itself gets more intense because there's a synergy between smell and taste and our brain lights up extra strong when the two of them go together
0: Rachel, I got a text from somebody who said they lost their sense of smell and taste for about six months. It returned, and now things smell differently. Is that, is that common? Is that something you've heard of before?
1: Yes, I have heard of that before, and it's interesting. I, I'm assuming considering it was a transient situation that it must have been either maybe illness or maybe medication-related, and depending upon what went on, it could be that certain things were a little bit reset. It could also be that experiences change a little bit with time, and depending upon you know what was the cause of this event, sometimes that can also change perception a little bit. But I have heard of this, and actually, the most interesting thing, cases I've heard of is people who have had accidents where they have lost their sense of smell, and there is sometimes some hope for getting it back uh, when, you know, let's say, the the damage that's been done hasn't been totally severe and there is some possibility for regeneration. And I know someone who had this experience and thought it was completely gone but kept on sniffing everything she possibly could and actually this active sniffing seems to also really help with trying to make the reconnections happen again if it's caught early enough. Anyway, she now can experience smells and flavors again but she says things smell differently to her too and she thinks and I think that it's to do with the fact that in her new wiring, because she had to literally like get new neurons to rewire in her brain with respect to smell, mm-hmm. that they wired somewhat differently, so that things don't taste the, or, or smell the way they used to, because the wiring isn't exactly the same. But that's a, a different case, I think, than your caller or your texter who has um, something more transient.
0: Yeah, that's it. Was it? not well. Again, all of this sounds foreign to me because I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know. But th- th- that was another thing. Um, the statistic the the AMA the American Medical Association they don't uh, they don't really put a whole lot of stock in losing your sense of smell there was a study that, that people were asked would they rather lose their big toe or their sense of smell? Explain that. It, it seemed a little strange.
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, most people really discount their sense of smell. They, you know, people really do not value it. When I mean, we think of, you know, vision is so important, hearing's sure. important, but smell, you know, who cares? Really, people don't understand how it's really involved in every aspect of our lives. Food is really just the tip of the iceberg. It's involved in our sexual and social relationships. It's involved in our sense of self. It's involved in our memory. It's involved in our our ability to think even. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary how it's involved in so many things, but because we don't realize it, as long as we have it, you know, things seem fine. It's when people lose it that they suddenly become aware of this really drastic change. But anyway, the American Medical Association, which is really only worrying about, you know, are you eating? (laughs) um, (laughs) Really devalues the sense of smell and ranks it only between 1 and 5% of the value of your life, whereas vision is rated as 8five percent so what this means is if you like lost your sense of smell in an accident and you were trying to get some compensation you know and the insurance company says well look the AMA says it's worth practically nothing so you know here's five dollars go away and I actually often work in legal cases where people who've lost their sense of smell and their lives are totally derailed and I make the state you know the tell the insurance company no <laughs> yeah. this is not trivial but um, the the situation with, you know, it's not just insurance companies. It's just like you mentioned with this study with the undergraduates that they really, you know, people just don't think their sense of smell is important. And, in fact, it wasn't even their big toe in that study. It was their little toe. And their little toe. You know, so, <laughs> so people really, you know, discount how important their sense of smell is. But, you know, if anyone unfortunately has the situation where they lose it, and especially if it's not just temporary, you know, it can be really really uh, one of the worst things to have happen.
0: Well, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but Kevin has a question for you, Rachel. He's... Uh, Kevin, welcome. Hello. What's your question?
1: Yes, my question. I, I had uh, surgery. I, I had uh, severe damage to my nose, and I've had a bunch of surgeries. And just recently, up to two years ago, three years ago, after the surgery, I lost complete... I have no smell whatsoever. And since then, I just... My food, I just, appetite just is not there. Nothing sounds good, you know, anything. The only thing I've ever seen to like is sweets, and I can't mm-hmm. seem to get past it, and I'm trying to figure out what I can do. I, I've lost a ton of weight because of it, which is unusual. I hear you talking about gaining weight, but for some reason I've lost it because just nothing sounds good. So weight. you're trying to figure well, out how I mean, to fix it. People can lose weight, too. It's more common, though, that people will gain weight, but you're not, you're not totally alone. Well, in my book, actually, in Why You Eat What You Eat, I discuss a variety of things where people can try to use different strategies from their different senses to try to make the food more interesting and more appealing for them. I mean, one thing... Is from a, a visual presentation perspective. Another is working with textures, so combining different kinds of textures, like creamy or crunchy, or things that you like to right. feel in your mouth, to make it more appealing. But you're completely right that you know sugar is something which is you know innately pleasing. So you're going to still have that craving and l- that pleasure, and you know obviously that it's not good just to eat sugar all right. the time. <laughs> Right, but there are there are certain things that you can potentially do, and, and it's sort of you need to kind of figure out what you think will work best for you. I mean, even listening to certain kinds of music might help, and you know the Ooh. situations that you're in when you're eating. So there's ways that you can augment your experience with food to try to make it more right. appetizing for you, even though you can't get the flavor any longer. Well, good luck, Kevin. Oh, okay. Thank you. Can I ask you what's the name of your book? Why you, Why eat? you eat? What you eat? Why eat? Why eat? Thank you so much. Take care, Kevin. You're welcome.
0: All right, one last one last smell question, Rachel, and then we'll move on to something else. But I again, I just it's fascinating to me how do how do aromas make people want to eat more? Why do we if we smell certain things? Why do all of a sudden we have to consume a ton of it?
1: Well, because of the fact that when we smell something, the part of our brains that are immediately activated are the amygdala, which is where emotion is processed, so they're very emotional. They're also, it's also connected to the part of the brain where motivation is processed. That's called the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus is also involved in food. So we have this emotional and food-motivating instant activation when we smell things, and so that drives us to eating when the smell has to do with food.
0: All right. The book, again, Why You Eat What You Eat, uh, the science behind our relationship with food. Uh, a couple more questions for Rachel hers When we uh, come back, we're going to take a very quick break, so just hang on one second, Rachel. Thanks again. Uh, all right, we'll do this, then we'll start wrapping things up. It is WGN. Yourpayroll.com. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Oh, oh man. Cookie, cookie, cookie starts with C. I love a good oh, cookie. C. I love all sorts of food, even though I can't smell it, Uh, but I also like to learn, and that's why I was uh, reading Why You Eat What You Eat, the science behind our relationship with food, the author Rachel Herz, a neuroscientist and author of The Scent of Desire, and That's Disgusting. Uh, You can get all her information, rachelherz.com. A couple more minutes, Rachel. Uh, Thanks again for spending so much time with me. So, Somebody else somebody texted this in but it's a question I wanted to ask too because you talk about how we can resist. Uh, people people love to go to the go to buffets. They go to a brunch, there's a buffet. They go Mother's Day, whatever, there's a big buffet. And and there's a part of our mind that thinks, well, if it's all I can eat, I should really eat all mm-hmm. I can possibly eat but one we know we shouldn't from a health standpoint how do we how do we battle that because you look at this buffet table and it is filled with a bounty of everything you can desire but we have to we have to overcome that right
1: Yes, well a couple of things. First of all, our you know when something seems sort of almost free like we pay a flat flat fee and then we get to gorge as much as we possibly can, we sort of have, you know, sort of remnants from our sort of evolutionary past where we needed to eat as much as possible lest <laughs> famine be around the corner <laughs> right. sort of kicks in <laughs> in these situations. The other thing that happens is when we see a lot of variety. So like you said, the all you can eat buffet, but Thanksgiving and the Super Bowl coming up, yes. you know, events where there's tons of different kinds of food out for us to see, we want to sample everything. And we don't get nearly as full on the food when we have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and more and more and more than if we were just eating, let's say, only chicken wings. We get much more satiated, much more sort of, you know, okay, I've had enough if we only eat one type of food. So two things. First of all, the antidote to all this variety is actually monotony. So if you, you know, for instance, have a Super Bowl party yourself, maybe your guests won't be very happy, but only serve chicken wings or only serve, you know, stuffed potato skins. (laughs) And, And then both you and your guests will not, over-consume. The other thing is, and this you can do both at the party and with respect to the all-you-can-eat buffet, is sit far away from the food the further we are from it two things happen one if you can't see it then you're a lot less lured by it so even though you're in the restaurant with the all you can eat buffet you don't see if you don't see the food you know you may have gotten your plate and you put food down on it and so forth but now you're at the table again mm-hmm. and you don't see the 25 things that you missed taking the first time around so you're less lured by it as well as the fact that you now have to get up and walk all that distance to get to that buffet again because presumably you're sitting fairly far away in the restaurant, and we're all a little bit lazy. So if we (laughs) have to get up and walk, you know, a distance plus, you know, go by everybody who's going to see us, oh, going back for seconds or thirds, that also tends to be a bit inhibiting. So for little behavioral tricks, you know, sit far away from the all-you-can-eat or the the massive mega-sampler and try not to have anything, you know, don't look at it if you possibly can, and being far away helps. And also if you're going to be at an event or, you know, preparing an event, the fewer options you present to your guests and yourself, the better, because the less you'll end up eating.
0: Okay. And there was something else as you were talking about the the monotony of the food and the Super Bowl parties. You also said the number of people there will determine how much we're going to eat, too.
1: Yeah, so that's another unfortunate thing about these parties that we go to where there's a lot of different food because the more people we're with, the more we eat, and there's a couple of reasons for that as well. And the main reason is the social component, which also leads back to the distraction component. So while we're socializing and having a great time, we're not paying attention to how much food we're putting on our plates and then into our mouths. And so, oh, my goodness, the plate is empty. I better load up again. And the other thing that's interesting, especially if you're at a restaurant where, you know, let's say after the softball game, everyone goes to the sure. bar and grill, and, there, you know, you order a bunch of snacks and so forth, and then the, the server comes along and, like, scoops all those plates away, and now your table is empty, you don't see the leftovers, like all the chicken wing bones and all the other oh, stuff that didn't okay. get eaten. So now it's like, okay, clear palate order some more. But if the food were left on the table, you know, you look down and go, oh my goodness, look how much we yeah. ate. Well, maybe we don't need another round of whatever the case might be. So that's, an, that's kind of the opposite of what I said about seeing food. Here you want to see the end of eating okay. because now you can remind yourself of how much you've already had to eat.
0: Well, it's a fascinating topic, and the book is fantastic. It's called Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. Rachel, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, very uh, informative. RachelHers.com is the website where you can get all of Rachel's information and pick up her other two books as well, The Scent of Desire, and That's Disgusting. Rachel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. It's been wonderful.